This is the Signs of the Times Commentary, a look at the world from around our kitchen table. This discussion leads rather nicely into something that we discussed at the end of last week's podcast. Uh, Laura had mentioned briefly the topic of uh, historical cycles involving Nazi Germany and the U.S. today. And at the end of last week's podcast, we, uh, after discussing the London bombings and the subsequent crackdown on, on civil liberties, as well as the, the global war on terrorism and the sort of creeping fascism that's especially prevalent in the U.S., we made a comment that perhaps the war on terrorism is a cover for something else. And one of the things that Laura talks about in her book, The Secret History of the World, is the idea of these cycles. And so getting back to the the Pentagon report, uh, we had the uh, two articles on last week's science page for last week's podcast. And there are just a couple interesting excerpts that I would like to point out. And the first one is from from the uh, article, Now the Pentagon Tells Bush Climate Change Will Destroy Us. And that's from The Observer. In this article, uh, the remark is made that by 2020, catastrophic shortages of water and energy supply will become increasingly harder to overcome, plunging the planet into war. They warn that 8,200 years ago, climatic conditions brought widespread crop failure, famine, disease, and mass migration of populations that could soon be repeated. So here we have uh, a hint that 8,200 years ago, there was this dramatic change in the global climatic conditions, uh, essentially some great catastrophe, which may be repeating itself. And the second point was from another article, uh, also from The Observer, and that article is entitled Key Findings of the Pentagon. This article has a, a nice list of all the things that they think might be happening, including, oh, Britain becoming like Siberia and food shortages and access to water causes strife and conflict. And the most interesting point related to our discussion is it's written, rich areas like the U.S. and Europe would become virtual fortresses to prevent millions of migrants from entering after being forced from land drowned by sea level rise or no longer able to grow crops. Waves of boat people pose significant problems. And so here we have the idea that the the rich countries will have to be locked down. And of course we see in the war on terror that there is the, the passing of all these fascist laws in order to institute control. We have uh, border lockdowns that are slowly progressing, and it's all being done in the name of the war on terror. But of course we have to ask the question, is it really being done for the because of the war on terror? Well, and given the data from the Pentagon's own report, perhaps the reason is something much more cataclysmic. Indeed, the, the interesting aspect of it is, is that the, these reports are coming from the Pentagon, and the tie-in obviously with the... Um, with the current war on terror and 9-11, etc., is that um, obviously the war on terror has been uh, really instigated uh, at the behest of, of small little groups within the, within the Pentagon. They're the ones who are actually really the driving force behind the war on terror. And now we have uh, another little Pentagon think tank who is revealing uh, their knowledge, and we assume that they have a, a lot of people maybe researching this with a lot of resources putting into, being put into um, investigating this idea of cyclical catastrophes or, or global catastrophe that may be recurring. And, uh, you know, it doesn't really take a genius to maybe put those two together and, and suggest that there may be some kind of a link between them. No, it doesn't take a genius. Um uh, unfortunately, the propaganda machine is pretty powerful, and it's uh, very difficult to 
overcome some of the uh, mimetic uh, themes that have been propagated via the mass media over, say, the past 25, 50 years. My guess is, based on some fairly interesting research, that uh, it was probably in the 1920s when certain groups became aware of what was going to be happening today. And they began making their preparations, making their plans. uh, And that is about the craziest thing anybody could say in terms of a conspiracy theory because that was one of the main objections I had to conspiracy theories, uh, which was if you're going to postulate that there are uh, groups or a group of conspirators, uh, you have to apply to them the same logic that applies to any any uh, any human being, which is the payoff. You know, why does anybody conspire to do anything? It's a payoff. And if somebody conspires to do something, say, in 1920, uh, and the payoff will only come, say, in 2020, uh, what, it, what, what good do they get out of it? And we know that human beings are such that nobody is going to do something in 1920 that they won't get the payoff for because they'll be dead. And this was, uh, you know, the chief argument I had against conspiracy is, uh, in addition to, of course, you know, the fact that uh, any group of human beings naturally tends to devolve into infighting or control games or playing, uh, uh, playing one issue against the other. Everybody wants to feather their own nest and, you know, get, what, get while the getting's good and get for themselves and to hell with everybody else. So it was fairly obvious to me that, that uh, postulating any group of human conspirators doing something over so vast a period of time was positively, absolutely absurd. It 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 simply it couldn't hold water, and um, and yet and yet repeatedly the documentation, the evidence, the mountains of evidence indicated that there was a conspiracy. So how can you reconcile, you know, the evidence of the of uh, of years of research, not just mine, but that of many, many other people against something that you know as well as you know that the sun is going to rise, which is the human beings are not going to conspire over massive periods of time, long periods of time, when they aren't going to be the beneficiary of their conspiracy. So how did you reconcile those two conflicting ideas? Well, for a long time, I had no answer, and that was actually one of the things that was in the back of my mind when I began the SEAS experiment, because I, I, I had no answer, and I couldn't think of an answer. I couldn't manufacture an answer, for goodness sakes. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't find any answer in anything anybody else had ever thought of that satisfied that. They, I mean, they would talk. Well, one of the answers that they would come with was that it was a benevolent conspiracy, that there were good guys who were willing to put off their payoff, put off their benefits. You know, they were they were not going to benefit from this. It was going to be future generations that were going to benefit from from their from their conspiration. You mean like benevolent bad guys? Well, 
benevolent good guys, the no. white brotherhood. No, yeah, but well, the guys were doing very bad things, but uh, it, but it in was a benevolent good. way. Right, right. This, this is the thing is that, you know, on the one hand, you can see that the, the things that were happening were clearly and obviously uh, not benevolent towards human beings. And on the other hand, you had people saying that the only way that this could happen was because it was good guys doing it and willing to put off their, their compensation and so on and so forth. Therefore, that there was this long string of benevolent beings that passed the baton from one generation to the next. Well, they were gradually and slowly shaping the, uh, the, the social and cultural and political atmosphere to bring about this wonderful awakening at the end of time. And it was all going to be so grand and glorious, and yet it was clearly and obviously garbage. And so I had a problem. You know, how do you deal with something that viscerally sits so badly in your stomach? And yet all of these stories and books and and specialist uh, works on on secret brotherhoods and the Illuminati and the Rosicrucians and the Masons and so on and so on and so forth are trying to tell you that it's all for your own good. Well, excuse me, it didn't look very good to me from where I sat from any point of view. And so I had a problem. And uh, and that was where it was until well into the Cassiopeian experiment when the ideas and concepts of hyperdimensional realities were brought forward to me, basically an ordinary, well, semi-ordinary housewife with five kids in Florida, you know, who who conducted these strange experiments in a room off of her kitchen on Saturday evenings with, you know, half the neighborhood in attendance. So that was where the ideas of hyperdimensional realities uh, came to me. And uh, it was only later, after I met Ark, that these ideas took on a little more solidity and mathematical and, and specific scientific terms, and I realized that it wasn't just, you know, s- silly nonsense and garbage. And then, of course, after I began publishing this work on the Internet, that I came to realize that this is the one subject that is almost totally and completely forbidden. It is, it, it is the most dangerous idea in the world that there are hyperdimensional realities and that there are real semi-physical beings that operate in these realities that actually may control our reality from a position of, uh, of control of space and time where long periods of conspiracy mean absolutely nothing and that they are the ones that are going to get the payoff. And as far as they're concerned, you know, it starts and finishes with them. Isn't that the the topic of hyperdimensional realities? Isn't that the topic that uh, when you were interviewed for the Jeff Rents show, isn't that the topic that he wanted to, uh, or appeared during the interview, to want to avoid at, at all costs? Well, you know, Jeff is a is a really nice and friendly guy, and you know, I got to say this: anybody who likes Shetland sheepdogs is okay in my book. And and he, and he, uh, he he said that he liked Shetland sheepdogs, which is my favorite breed of dogs. So you know, I, I like Jeff. But yes, the truth is that there was it was fairly obvious that this issue of hyperdimensional realities was not. 
what uh, he wanted me to talk about, and which is understandable. He wanted me to talk about my article on Mossad and moving companies. Well, the thing is, is I said pretty much what I had to say in the article, and there really wasn't much, too much more to say about it. I couldn't absolutely prove that Mossad had any hand in anything. It looked highly suggestive to me. Uh, a lot of other people agreed that it was highly suggestive. There was a lot of circumstantial evidence, but you know, I'm not a I'm not an expert on Mossad. I'm not an expert on uh, on secret services or uh, uh, spying and so on and so forth. You know, what I'm really becoming an expert on is hyperdimensional realities. When you introduced the topic, I was thinking, yeah, well, there goes our audience. They're all going to be turning off because now we're getting into things that are so outrageous for most people. So beyond what they have been taught is our world and and what is possible in our world, that the idea that our reality is embedded in another reality and that this reality has the same relationship to us as we have with our sheep and our cows is just so outrageous that that people, their ears get shut off. Well, I think that that's deliberate because if there is really a conspiracy, the, I think the the grandest conspiracy of all is the one that has been put into effect to prevent human beings from knowing about the true nature of their world. And I would say that that has been effected primarily by religions. For for the religions of our world, there are there are basically uh, two positions: on or off. You know, dead or alive. You know, in heaven or in hell. Uh, it's it's a pretty black and white existence, and uh, there's no such thing as an in between state. You know, a hyperdimensional state, which uh, you know f- fairly obviously explains a great many things about our reality that formerly were inexplicable. So, so. Uh, convincing everybody not to look there has been one of the greatest feats of the denizens of that reality and certainly is the one thing to which they put a great deal of attention and in which they uh, exert a great deal of effort. Mm, it's interesting, though, um, while it may sound like a, you know, a topic that's far out there for a lot of people, um, and, and a lot of people may have a, an instinctive reaction against it that it's just, you know, make-believe. Uh, these same people, uh, and a, a large percentage, I suppose, of, of humanity, uh, entertain ideas of uh, life after death, sure. he- heaven and hell, Satan, sure. which are all quite kind of... Uh, yeah, I mean, the same people who will deny hyperdimensional realities will say, you know, guy was, you know, a guy was nailed to a stick, you know, died after a few hours, was put in a grave, was dead for three days, and then he arose and ascended to heaven. You know, I mean, how weird is that? You know, if something good or bad happens, it's attributed to God's will. Well, what about attributing it to the existence of higher realities? And in the same way that you might have an ant hill, and there are a bunch of ants crawling around, and along comes a little boy with a rock, and he decides to drop a rock on the ant hill. Of course, most of the ants think that it was, you know, God sent a rock to destroy us. Well, you know, one of the ants scampers off to the side and notices this, you know, strange form, which, you know, he's he's unaware of, and he thinks that perhaps, well, gee, maybe there's some sort of higher life form or other reality or something. And, and of course, he's called crazy, and, you know, yeah, all the other the ants say, thing. no, no, it's God. Yeah, I mean, traditional, traditional religious beliefs are all very, they're, they're presented in very simplistic terms, you know, God, 
Satan, heaven, hell, that kind of thing. But oh, I mean, no. the, but but Good, bad. but hyperdimensional realities, and then the concept uh, of that is um, attempts to or, or, or does put a more certainly a more complex framework around it, but something that's much more plausible. If you're going to go there then let's talk sense, right, rather than in simplistic, childish kind of notions of yeah. good and bad. And, hi- and hyperdimensional realities, uh, you know, posits not only, you know, one one level more than us, between us and God, so to speak, it posits m- possibly many levels, not only, you know, vertically, if you want to call it that, but also horizontally. We have... Uh, you know, reality seems to be way more complex than people would like to admit. And, of course, that's one of the reasons that they don't like such ideas, because it's so nice to believe that God is in his heaven and all is right with the world. I mean, never mind the fact that, you know, anybody with two neurons in contact with one another can see that that's not the case. Well, I don't want to talk about God. What I really want to talk about is counterintelligence. And for those of you who don't know what counterintelligence is... It's uh, a program that was uh, supposedly created by the FBI to uh, instigate uh, actions against a growing public awareness of some of the uh, dirty behind-the-scenes activities that the United States government was involved in. And uh, apparently people were becoming aware and they were protesting and they were acting in certain ways to uh, cause the government a little bit of grief and this was back in the what the 50s, 60s, 70s, the Vietnam era and uh, it was seen as useful to instigate actions against other groups or against groups that were uh, somewhat hostile to the aims of the United States government. And this takes us back a little bit to the idea that, you know, the conspiracy is benevolent. Uh, some people would like to excuse the government by saying, well, they know what they're doing and they're doing things for our benefit to take care of us, we the people. They and have information that we don't. Yes, they know, they, they know things we don't and, and they have been educated to handle these things and so on and so forth. And that is the most patently absurd point of view that I've ever encountered, but I've encountered it plenty of times. It's rather condescending as well, isn't it? Well, sure. So um, there it was uh, in the 60s and 70s that uh, a lot of the bright young people in the United States and even some of the older people in the United States were becoming rather tired of of, uh, boys coming home in body bags and boxes. Rightly so. Uh, and they began to look at things a little more uh, seriously and, and with a, a little more care. And they decided that the United States was involved in a war that really it had no business being involved in. And uh, the sons and brothers and fathers of, uh, of American people were dying and coming home in boxes. So it seems that, you know, historically speaking, it's only when people suffer enough that they get to the point that they begin to seek the way to end their suffering. It's like somebody with some dreaded disease that requires surgery. You have to suffer enough until you 
uh, get to the point where, you know, your fear of the disease exceeds your fear of the surgical um, corrective action that needs to be taken. So uh, people feared or suffered enough from deaths of their husbands, fathers, and brothers that they overcame their fear of the government and began to protest and began to, you know, act against the government in in active ways. So the government decided that this couldn't be allowed to happen, and they uh, created what's called counterintelligence. And counterintelligence, if you think about the term counterintelligence, intelligence is thinking you know something or gathering information about something, And counterintelligence means to prevent the gathering of that information or to counteract that intelligence. So if there is a group that is gathering information and it needs to be countered, it needs to be prevented from disseminating that information or having an effective voice, uh, the best thing to do is, uh, first of all, to to discredit the group. Uh, That that would be the simplest thing, is to discredit them, to make them look like idiots or or liars or... um, uh, terrorists or terrorists and then of course you know there are a number of ways to do that and counterintelligence experimented with all kinds of interesting techniques they would send an agent who uh, who would join a group and become a member and then uh, little by little he would co-opt uh, the group or he would plant doubt and dissension or he would uh, gather personal details and then twist and use those against group members or blackmail them um, yeah, not only that, but such agents would, um, <clears throat> such covert agents would uh, actually instigate violence uh, yes. while, while at a rally or a, or a demonstration. And then Absolutely, and this has, been, this has been witnessed even more recently during the protests uh, at the Republican National Convention before the election that uh, there were agents who, um, uh, who joined some of these action groups and uh, would act in a violent way, which then made the legitimate group, which had no intention of acting violently, look very bad. Um, You know, we've had experiences ourselves with agents trying to infiltrate our groups. Uh, We've had, uh, you know, very, very personal experiences uh, with this type of activity. And the the interesting thing is to see how such agents can uh, can co-opt individuals and convince them that they are being treated badly, that they are you know that they are really a leader themselves, and they ought to start their own group, or you know so on and so forth. So the uh, the effect of counterintelligence is basically to sow discord and confusion, uh, and also there's a, a new and more interesting subset of the species, which is, uh, uh, you know, creating groups that lead people down the primrose path from the get-go. Uh, you know, a group that claims to be uh, acting uh, in a certain way and promote certain ideas and ideals, and a lot of people will join, a lot of people will get on board and put in a lot of energy, and yet the goals of the specific group are you know, completely useless, a waste of time. So well, we've seen this in the nine eleven movement. Absolutely. And then of course there is uh there is even even more frightening things which are what we would call cosmic counterintelligence, which is is where things happen that are seemingly so synchronous uh 
that you, you, you actually do a double take when you see it happen. And I'll give you a specific example. Uh, recently, we uh, were in touch with a, a well-known journalist, uh, an anti-war journalist, who, whose work we have admired from a distance for a long time. We've had some, uh, some contact with this individual, and we've, we've observed his ideas growing and developing over time. And recently, we decided that uh, after after an exchange, that we would like to have a meeting with him, and and perhaps with a couple of other people whose whose work we've followed, and to share some ideas that we've had that, uh, and also some of our own networking skills that we've developed. As I as I mentioned earlier, we have groups all around the planet that are just you know regular individuals just. Working in their own sphere of life, their own inf- their own sphere of influence, uh, doing things that uh, that are like the flapping of a butterfly wing. So we would we we have thought that we ought to expand this network and and that it can be uh, very helpful to some other people, such as said journalist. So we wrote and offered an invitation, and the invitation was accepted, and everything was fine. Until a few days later, the, the 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 journalist in question wrote to me and said, "Well, he couldn't come to visit because he had received information from a very, very reliable source uh, that if he came, he would be in danger." Well, our first thought, of course, was that somebody very much wanted to prevent this meeting. And we did some investigating to find out if the danger that he expected was in any way possible. And we determined that in this particular case, it absolutely was impossible as far as anything we knew up to that moment. And then today, there was an article published on the Internet or in a, in a, in a, in a news, from a news source that indicates in a very strange way that the danger that he had been warned about may in fact actually exist to some extent, even though we do not think that it exists in France. There is still the possibility, and even a very small possibility is not worth taking the risk. So the question is, was this accomplished via purely human channels? Is this individual's uh, voice so important that human beings on the other side of the Atlantic would contact other human beings on this side of the Atlantic and arrange the incident that produced the event that confirmed the danger? Or was this something that was arranged uh, from some other level of reality? It's, it's very difficult to, to imagine how, you know, how something like this could... Uh, generate such a response uh, is 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 the fear of this meeting so great that that it has uh, caused so much effort to be put into preventing it so those are all very good questions i mean i can't i'm sorry i can't give more details than that but um that's just a general rundown of the situation but i would like to point out that I've been observing and reading about a lot of different groups uh, on the Internet for, oh, since, what, 1995, 1996. And, you know, we know who we are. We know what we do. 
But we have only words to convey that to our readers, to our listeners. We can't prove to anyone unless they visit us who we really are and what we really do. People who come to visit us see who we are. They see what we do. They see how we live. And they understand that, you know, we are real, we are sincere, and we work very hard. And those people who initiate hostile actions against us um, have their audience also. And their audience generally consists of people who haven't been to visit us, who don't know us, who don't interact with us directly, and for whom we have nothing but words. And then the, the issue then comes to who has the most emotional words. Can someone generate emotional reactions with false words, with lies? Well, certainly they can. We know they can. We've seen them doing it for millennia. So there we are. We are left with a, a bit of frustration that uh, uh, counterintelligence seems to be far more powerful than, than any words of truth or any actions of sincerity that can be initiated on our part. And we are very sorry that that is the way the world is, but it just makes it that much more valuable when someone finds something of truth. The trouble there is that when you start posing hyperdimensional realities and and this idea that there could be planning and uh, carrying out of these plans coming from higher levels, again, it, it is so outside of the normal person's awareness that they'll discount it and they'll think that, that we've gone off the deep end when we start explaining it. Well, there's a an example that I'd like to give on that. Way back in, what, 1993, I believe it was, when, when I was uh, still working with hypnotherapy and I... And it was pretty much a mundane activity. People wanted to, um, uh, to have... Uh, you know, help with habits, with stress, with anxiety, with, you know, with things like hives or um, sleep problems or uh, so on and so forth. It was it was really very kind of mundane. And then, of course, there were people who came in that were a little more esoterically inclined and they wanted to have a past life regression experience. And it didn't matter, you know, whether I believed in it or not, because quite frankly, I really didn't. Uh, I took it as a possibility at that point, but not even a probability. It was it was one of those things where the only thing I was interested in was the fact that the therapy worked, the people enjoyed it, you know, they got what they wanted, and and everybody was happy. And quite often they 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 got uh, very good relief from whatever issues were concerning them. And then the issue of um, so-called or alleged aliens came up, and I was quite adamant that. Uh, that this was something that was just, you know, a disease of the mind, so to say. And then shortly after that period, then I encountered the first person I had uh, had ever interacted with professionally who uh, seemed to be describing what could only be, or well, I can't even say it could only be, but it seemed to be describing a classic abduction experience. It was my intention when I made the uh, the appointment for this woman to come in for, for her therapeutic experience, shall we call it, uh, that I was going to 
disprove the alien hypothesis. I was going to use very clever ways and means to ask the right questions to take it in the other direction because of course you know there are a lot of people who say that when someone has a a hypnotic regression that they uh, retrieve the memory of an alien abduction that it's it's because of the expectations or the leading questions of the of the hypnotherapist well there I was a hypnotherapist who absolutely categorically did not believe in any of that nonsense and I was going to even in a sense uh, try to prove the exact opposite with my questions and needless to say, the experiment failed miserably. But that wasn't the thing that was so shocking about it. What was so shocking about it was the fact that there were there was a a, a group of sightings, what they call a flap, uh, which I later learned uh, in in my area on the night of this particular hypnotic uh, regression. And that, in fact, one of these alleged UFOs was seen to be in the vicinity of my house, uh, to be more specific, right over the top of my house at the precise time I was doing the hypnosis session with the woman who was uh, recounting a so-called classic abduction experience. Um, That gave me a little bit of pause because... I had been very careful when I was talking to her on the phone to not mention anything about so-called aliens or alien abductions, that even though I recognized that she was reciting a classic abduction experience, I never wanted to or intended to and was very careful not to even mention the word because I wanted to keep my sample pure, so to say. And... um, So there she was. She was uh, under hypnosis in my living room. And there was apparently a UFO hovering over over my house that was, according to her, exerting some sort of controls on her. Of course, I didn't know it was from a UFO over over my house at the time because I was inside the house. But it was later that I realized that this is what she was talking about. So the question that came in my mind was if nobody had ever said anything about aliens or alien abductions that pretty much precluded human beings transmitting that information from one to the other and saying okay this woman's going to abduct uh, is going to hypnotize so and so and and going to extract from her information you better send you know some kind of a of a craft over there to you know prevent her from talking and, uh, you know, we got to take care of this matter right away. I mean, that was, that simply wasn't possible because nobody even talked about that. Uh, it's not to say that it wasn't possible that, that this woman wasn't being monitored for other reasons because it did turn out later that she did have a, a high-level security clearance in her previous job, and her husband had worked at the, an underground base um, at Fort Detrick, Maryland, and, and in other places in his career as a physicist. So it's it's not completely out of out of range to consider that she may have been being monitored, and that maybe a, a human-initiated intervention took place because she was going to be hypnotized and that they were aware of this because the, the the appointment was made over the telephone. But 
I, I really... I really have a little bit of a problem with that because of the way the UFOs were seen in the area at that time by the various people, as well as the configuration of the craft themselves. And it was an awful lot of trouble to go through for just one woman who probably didn't know anything that was really serious enough to send out... You know, multi. You know, assuming they were human-built craft, multi-million-dollar craft to scare the hell out of you know half a dozen people in in a little county in the backwoods in Florida, as well as some you know podunk you know hypnotherapist in a small town, you know on on the on the Gulf Coast, and some poor retired woman who was just running a print shop. I mean, it was an awful lot of money and an awful lot of expenditure of time and effort and energy just to do that. But at the same time, it it's what we see over and over again in these kind of experiences where as soon as you say, well, it's, it's possible it could be human, and then all the people who want to deny that there's any kind of hyperdimensional realities at all jump on that, and over and over again we see that there's always an ambiguity. There's always something there where you have to make a leap of discernment yourself. You have to make a choice. You have to make a choice. That's what it comes down to. You have to make a choice. Um because on the one hand, and I did, you know, after describing the exper- experience, which is written up on our website, I did uh, receive letters from various people who said, oh, it was one of ours, you know, it was U.S. secret government project. But then again, you, you, you're you faced with, you know, this woman could not possibly, in my opinion, based on her own descriptions, have known anything that required the deploying of multi-million dollar aircraft. And then you get to the point that these kind of things have been seen long before modern society was capable of developing mm-hmm. them. Exactly. So that's that's what I kind of call, uh, you know, cosmic counterintelligence. And I'm wondering if this recent incident with our with our journalist friend is not another one of those cosmic counterintelligence activities because somebody is really really afraid of us getting together with him and with some other people because if we got together with some of these people and shared with them some of the information that we have that we that we we don't necessarily uh propagate for obvious reasons that uh um you know forming a network might might actually have some effect on the social and cultural reality in which we are all living at present. That's it for part two of our interview with Laura Nyadchik. We'll continue on next time.